0: Everyone, and welcome to Keeping Them Safe. My name is Sharon Doty, and I'm here inside of a commitment to educate every adult on the planet about the behavioral characteristics of people who are a risk of harm to our kids, potential predators. We want each and every one of you to know what to look for, what to watch for, and how to intervene and interrupt behaviors that could lead to a very difficult situation for both children and for those who are acting out. Today, we have a unique opportunity, one that we've been working towards for a few months now. Today, we we have with us Dr. Maggie Ingram from the Centers for uh, Disease Control. Dr. Ingram is a health scientist from the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control and the Division of Violence Prevention's Child Abuse, Neglect, and Adversity Team. Maggie joins us today to talk about a topic that can sometimes be uncomfortable or hard to discuss. We're going to talk today about problematic sexual behavior among children. Now, before we go on, let me just say, don't close your eyes, don't turn off the the podcast, Don't walk away thinking, I don't have that issue. No, you need to listen to this. You need to hear what Maggie has to say about this. In this podcast, you will begin to gain an understanding of what's healthy and appropriate sexual behavior with young children are developing and what is problematic or harmful sexual behavior in our kids. And we want you to know, this is Maggie and I talking today, but the opinions and statements in the podcast are those of Maggie and do not necessarily represent the official position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, I know that was a big mouthful and a lot. We're going to get right to it, and I just invite you to listen carefully with an open mind Um, to a conversation that, as I said earlier, is difficult. So Maggie, welcome, welcome, welcome to our uh,
1: conversation. Thank you so much, Sharon. I'm so excited to be here with you today and to help educate your listeners about problematic sexual behavior among youth.
0: You know, I think that um, many of our listeners have an idea of what, you know, what do you you mean by problematic sexual behavior? And I'm not sure what they think it means actually reflects what you're pointing to. So let's just start there. What do you mean by problematic sexual behavior among youth?
1: Well, first, it's really important to understand that sexual behavior in children refers to a whole spectrum of behavior going all the way from developmentally appropriate to problematic to even harmful or illegal. So problematic sexual behavior in children is behavior that's not developmentally appropriate and can be harmful or in some cases even illegal And this would be due to factors like large age gaps, differences in developmental level or ability, or elements of force, intimidation, or coercion. This type of behavior, problematic sexual behavior, can occur throughout childhood and adolescence. And in fact, some studies suggest that it may actually represent up to 75% of sexual harm experienced by minors. Mm. But today I'll focus on younger children since adolescents and teenagers require a whole different set of (laughs) considerations. (laughs) I'm sure they do. (laughs) I mean, we know that just from living with teenagers, right? And being teenagers, right? Absolutely. And another thing that's important to understand is while the behavior may be sexual, the intentions and the motivations may not be sexual. So these behaviors may be related to things like curiosity, anxiety, imitation, attention seeking, or self-calming. And this is one reason why the language that we use to talk about this behavior is so important. You may hear this behavior referred to as peer-to-peer sexual abuse or youth-perpetrated child sexual abuse And you may also hear children who engage in problematic sexual behavior referred to as juvenile offenders, but terms like these can be stigmatizing and misleading. And this is why instead of using those stigmatizing terms, we use the term problematic sexual behavior. Let me give you an example. A common form of sexual exploration young children may engage in is, I'll show you mine if you show me yours, referring Uh to their genitals. Between two four-year-old children, this behavior may be an appropriate and expected part of development, but a nine-year-old may not understand that engaging in this type of activity with a five-year-old is inappropriate due to the large age gap. But calling this child a juvenile offender or calling the behavior sexual abuse can immediately label the situation and the child in an unnecessarily negative and stigmatizing way. And it might even prevent caregivers and other adults from addressing it in the most helpful or effective ways. It's important to remember that children are naturally curious, right? And they're navigating really tricky waters without a lot of information about what's okay. In other words, a behavior may be problematic or potentially harmful because of a significant age gap or a difference in developmental level. But that doesn't mean the child engaging in this behavior is attempting to cause harm or even understands that what they're doing is harmful or inappropriate.
0: You know, Maggie, what you've been uh, talking about laying this groundwork for this conversation, this is really critical to my listeners. It's really critical to all of us because we have this we have this fear of even having these conversations with our children you know or even talking about this at all and and some people have a fear of anything sexual um being part of a conversation or part of their conversation with their children and and i think then they do begin to use those stigmatizing words that you're pointing to and that just um you know none of us like labels
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: <laughs> none of us like labels for, for anything. I, I had a priest tell me once, not long ago, that he uh he read an article I wrote about those labels, you know, divorced, married, widowed, all of that, and realized that when he, he was in his 70s, that he had been living his life under a label he put on himself that was you know, put there by others when he was younger, that he's an orphan. And he said, I'm 75 years old and I'm still live like I'm an orphan because I got labeled that way. So I think what you're pointing to is really critical. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things we want to emphasize in these conversations is how we identify and intervene. When behaviors are problematic without being accusatory or overly dramatic, which and this is a subject area where that can certainly happen. That's why we talk in this in this program about potentially problematic adult behaviors. However, if these behaviors occur on a spectrum, how can a parent, a guardian, or a caregiver tell? If a sexual behavior the child has engaged in or experienced is developmentally appropriate,
1: problematic, or even harmful or illegal, as you said? Well, that is the million-dollar question, and it is a big challenge to make this distinction. So, developmentally appropriate sexual behaviors and problematic behaviors are unfortunately not distinct categories with cut and dry criteria that apply to every single situation, But there are a few guidelines that caregivers can use to tell if a behavior is developmentally appropriate versus problematic or potentially harmful. So developmentally appropriate sexual behavior occurs between children that are similar in age, size, and developmental level. And it's typically unplanned and infrequent. It's also mutually agreed upon by both children without any force, coercion, or emotional distress. On the other hand, sexual behavior between children might raise a red flag as being problematic or potentially harmful if there are significant differences in age or developmental levels, if there's any use of threats, intimidation, force, or coercion, or if there's any signs of discomfort or emotional distress in either child. And other red flags might be an unusual level of interest, which means sexual behaviors that occur often or are the primary focus of play. Or if behaviors continue to occur after an adult has let the child know that it's inappropriate or potentially harmful.
0: You know, one of the things you said there was a significant difference in age. Um, what is a
1: significant difference in age? That is a fantastic question, and it speaks to why this is so challenging. Um, the tricky part is that there's no one number you can go by that will apply in every situation. So one way to think about it is, would these two kids be considered peers in other situations? Would they be in the same class? Would they participate in the same activities? But there are definitely unique factors to consider in every situation, which presents a real challenge for adults. When you're trying to determine if a behavior is appropriate or problematic, it's also really important to understand that different groups of youth often receive very different responses related to the same sexual behaviors. For example, LGBTQ plus kids, boys and kids of color are more likely to be reported or receive harsher responses for the same or similar sexual behaviors compared to heterosexual kids, girls or white kids. So it's also really important to think about any potential biases that might influence our reactions to a child's sexual behavior.
0: That's really, really, really important that you pointed that out, uh, Maggie, because on on the podcast, we have already talked once and we'll reinforce again the difference in adult offenders and the way adult offenders are dealt with by the juvenile system, whether they are male or female or male and female acting together. So whether they are heterosexual or people of color, there are so many biases that, um, that we really can see and have been for, focusing on in dealing with adult behavior, but it is important to reinforce what you've had to say here about those those differences, those unique characteristics um, in in young people. Also,
1: yes, it's it's essential to think about those things. Yeah, what makes a child more likely to engage in problematic sexual behavior? There are a lot of reasons why children may engage in problematic sexual behavior, and one of the biggest ones is simply that they lack information about appropriate and inappropriate sexual behavior. So like we've already talked about in this podcast, it can be incredibly difficult for even adults to determine what's appropriate and what's problematic or potentially harmful. So it makes perfect sense that kids don't have a natural understanding of these boundaries. Another reason that kids might participate in problematic sexual behavior is they've been exposed to sexual content in the media, or they've witnessed or experienced violence, including sexual harm. But it's important to understand that while these reasons or experiences can provide context for why youth may engage in problematic sexual behavior, it doesn't mean it's guaranteed to happen. Mm. So for example, if a child has experienced sexual abuse, Adults should not assume that the child will engage in problematic sexual behavior. And then finally, like I mentioned earlier, children may also engage in problematic sexual behavior for reasons like curiosity, attention seeking, or imitation. Yeah. So what you're pointing to here is really critical
0: for our listeners to be responsible for, you know, recently I had several conversations with parents who related to me their own stories of how they learned about sex as young children. And it wasn't usually a great experience. (laughs) You know, some parents described being given a book about the topic by their own parent, but never having an open discussion with them. In other cases, they were simply given a list of things not to do. It seems that we are less equipped as adults to have these conversations about appropriate sexual behavior than we are to teach them how to operate the microwave or uh, even how to learn how to drive. Mm -hmm. Um, We have some work to do here if we're to be effective at intervening early and in a way that promotes healthy sexual development. You know, I did have one mother tell me once uh, about a really cool thing that she did that was just amazing. Her daughter had been through, um, her middle schooler had been through a, um, a program at school, a health program at school for the girls about what her body was going to do and about sexual behavior and so forth. And, and the mom did this really cool thing. She said to the, her daughter, look, you might have questions and you might feel uncomfortable asking them. So I got you a little notebook here. And if you can write down your questions and just if you have any questions anytime, just leave it on the kitchen bar and I will answer you in writing and I'll put it back in the notebook. I and love it was, that idea. Isn't that just, isn't that just so free? She said about two days later, she got the little notebook back with two uh, questions in it. She said they were uncomfortable for me to answer, but I really got that this was working. And she said within a week Her daughter was openly talking to her about it. That's the kind of thing that helps us, you know, the grownups over here,
1: get over those hurdles of speaking to them. I just thought it was brilliant. That is, and it really speaks to the fact that as parents, nobody knows your kids better than you, and nobody knows what they're going to respond to better than you. And so you're really in the best position to decide, you know, would my kid be uncomfortable if I tried to sit them down and talk face to face about this? Would it be better to give them something like a journal, like you said, that that really, you know, kind of takes them, takes the pressure off and lets them do it in a way that they're comfortable with? And that's so essential.
0: Yeah. And it's also part of that developmental process that kids are going through, especially in, in middle school, when they're trying to figure out if their kids or if they're teenagers, or if they're growing up, or if they're not growing up. And that that need they have to grasp at some independence, to put it in their court and give them the freedom. I just thought that was that was whatever way works with your child. I just thought it was a really brilliant way to uh, empower that child to get what they needed. And I just yes. thought it was awesome. So, yeah. So now we want to look at what can caregivers do? What can parents and grandparents and people who care for kids do to prevent their child from engaging in or experiencing problematic sexual behavior?
1: Well, you know, just like with adult to child, child sexual abuse, increasing caregiver comfort, knowledge and involvement and understanding and discussing sexual development, sexual curiosity and sexual behavior And other important topics like self-respect, boundaries, and healthy expression of emotions can open a door to have conversations with children that are critical to helping children understand healthy and problematic sexual behavior and keeping kids safe. So it's similar to the need for parents to be able to talk about adult to child child sexual abuse. We really want to have an open platform of communication and a comfortable dialogue between parents and children. And that example Mm -hmm. you gave is a fantastic example. Some strategies that caregivers can take include educating yourself using available resources like this podcast or some resources that I will provide to Sharon to attach to the description of the podcast. Recognizing risks among children in addition to risks between adults and children. So this is a big one. You might think about what adults are going to be there. If you're, if you're sending your kid for a sleepover, you might think about what adults are going to be there. Do I trust these adults? But do you think about what children are going to be there? How many kids are going to be there? What ages are they? What will the supervision there be like? So this is really essential to think about for caregivers, for youth serving organizations. For a lot of us, it's on our radar to think about the risks between adults and children, mm-hmm. but we may not necessarily or automatically think about the risks between children. So that's another strategy that you can, that you can use. And then, like I've mentioned, creating an environment where your child feels like they can talk to you about things like sexuality and sexual behavior. And so to go back to the example you provided, not only did that put the control in the child's hands about how and when they wanted to talk about it, but it also sent a really clear signal that this is something that's okay to talk about. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so important. Mm-hmm. And along those lines, um, another strategy that can help keep kids safe from problematic sexual behavior is explaining how to recognize what problematic or harmful sexual behavior among children looks like so that they can not only avoid such behaviors themselves, but also identify when another child is attempting to engage in problematic behavior with them.
0: You know, this, those are great strategies, Maggie. However, uh, setting aside that one mom, even though she was uncomfortable with the questions, she did let her daughter ask them. This Those strategies assume that the adult is comfortable with the conversation. And that is very often not the case. Right. One of the things I tell people is to practice the conversation until they're uncomfortable with it. And in fact... I suggest to them that they go into the bathroom, uh, turn on the shower to make sure there's a noise, and talk about sex and appropriate sexual behavior, the name of private body parts to themselves in the mirror until they're comfortable with the words for most adults um the conversation begins with conditioning themselves to be able to have those conversations in a way that's not significant, so that the environment you refer to as the appropriate one for this discussion is conducive to the discussion and to the conversation.
1: That's a fantastic point, Sharon. It's it's not just about making your kid feel comfortable talking about it. It's making sure you feel comfortable talking about it. And I love your suggestion for how parents can increase <laughs> their own comfort level with discussing these, these tricky topics.
0: Now, on another plane here, we we need to look at what if your child is the one that's engaging in problematic sexual behavior.
1: Well, this is really challenging for any parent, Um, and the most important thing in my mind to think about here is that it's important to respond to problematic sexual behavior in a way that communicates that while the behavior itself is unacceptable, the child is still loved and accepted. And it's really also important to think about that constructive responses to a child's sexual behavior, and this could be developmentally appropriate sexual behavior or problematic sexual behavior. Either way, responding in a constructive and compassionate way can provide lessons to children regarding what behaviors are acceptable, what behaviors are unacceptable or could cause harm, And these responses also signal to a child that they can expect support from their caregivers if they experience behaviors that are inappropriate or harmful, or if they're having some concerns about their own behaviors. So some strategies a parent can consider if their child has engaged in problematic sexual behavior include staying calm, explaining to them why the behavior was inappropriate or harmful, because like we mentioned earlier, A lot of kids just may not know that a behavior that they're engaging in is harmful or is inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And so helping them understand why that is inappropriate or potentially harmful is going to be so important to preventing that behavior from continuing. You may also want to increase monitoring of the child's activities. And this would also include increased supervision of digital spaces like social media or online gaming alerting other caregivers such as teachers or staff within youth-serving organizations to increase their supervision as well. And then when possible, it may be helpful to get professional support to help navigate the situation because none of us have all the answers, but there are people out there who do have some of the answers and can help guide you through this really tricky situation. And this could involve talking with a therapist Or finding an organization that specializes in problematic sexual behavior among children, such as the National Center for Sexual Behavior of Youth in Oklahoma, and reaching out to them for guidance or for resources. And in some cases, depending on what the situation itself is, there may be required appointments with involved parties such as Child Protective Services, probation, and the court system. There are also some great resources for parents available through the National Center for Sexual Behavior of Youth, which Sharon will include in the episode description for your reference.
0: It's also important um, to begin the conversation with, I love you and followed by a discussion of what's appropriate and why. You know, most parents and guardians and caregivers start with, I love you, but. And that phrase is really often heard by children as a reminder that the love of that parent or guardian or caregiver is conditional, no matter what we say. Mm -hmm. While that is not what we intend, we often forget that children's brains are not fully developed. They don't really think conceptually. They think very literally and but is a condition. It sounds like I would love all of you, but there's this part that's not lovable. Now, I love you and reminds the child that they are loved and there are behaviors that aren't acceptable. It's a simple thing that we as parents and grandparents and guardians and caregivers can take on that makes a real difference in the environment in which we need to have challenging or difficult conversations and not just about problematic sexual behavior. I love you and it's not okay for you to hit the dog with a stick it doesn't whatever it is it's i love you and so that children are understand that what we're saying comes from love not from conditions they have to meet in order to be loved
1: absolutely that is it's so important there's a way to emphasize that the behavior is not acceptable and to explain to them why it might be harmful Without making them feel like they are bad. And that's why it's so important to think about the many different reasons why children may engage in these behaviors. One of the biggest being that they just simply don't have, they're not equipped with the knowledge to understand why this behavior may be harmful. And so that's why it's so important in those situations, which can be really scary and really uncertain, to take a breath, pause, and try your best to stay calm and to know that you know your child, you know their heart, and there's a way that you can work through this together. That's great. Maggie,
0: we really thank you for being with us today. And perhaps we can um, have another conversation and talk about teenagers, maybe two or three conversations about
1: teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) I would love that. And I just so appreciate (laughs) you inviting me today. And beyond that, I appreciate all the time and effort that you put into this podcast. I know it's a fantastic resource for parents, and I'm just honored to be a part of it. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. We do have a long-term commitment here to create a world where no child ever has to fear being sexually assaulted by someone that says they care about them, no matter what their age. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for being here, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Keeping Them Safe.